you are listening to Single Service. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Daniel Ling is an architect, director, and principal at Montgomery Sizem in Toronto. While involved in a wide range of work from education to healthcare to various forms of housing, he more recently designed housing for the homeless through the use of modular construction. This is what we're going to talk about today. So, Daniel, thank you very much for being on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. So can you start by telling us who you are, what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? Sure, absolutely. So to say I, I'm an architect and um, together with my partners, we, we're really interested in working to build a practice that has um, a strong culture and they really do work that combines design quality with strong social value. So in other words, design, designing building that addresses social issues. That sounds great. So. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you're here to talk about supportive housing projects. Can you tell us what they are um, uh, more specifically in more detail? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a series of them. So, I mean, in essence, they are permanent housing um, for those that are experiencing homelessness. Right? So um, it really this project for us really started in early 2020 um, with the beginning of the pandemic. Um, the first series of projects um, are for the city of Toronto, what we call phase one. There were two projects and the initiative was to provide uh, 100 homes over two sites. Um, so these two are constructed already, one at 11 Macy Avenue and one at um, uh, Dover Court. Um, and so these are delivered through modular construction because of the speed of it, um, because there's a need to um, provide them through rapid delivery. Um, we, you know, really at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a you know overcapacity with the with the shelter system. There's a need to find homes for these individuals very quickly. Uh, so the city of Toronto employed this method to do, deliver these two. Um, so they are a self-sufficient, you know, small compact studio units, about 300 square feet. Uh, it has a kitchen, uh, washroom, shower, everything that is, you know, that is in a home, uh, but in a very compact, efficient fashion. Um, and so the reason for modular is that because of the, as I mentioned, because of the speed of it. So from, from the beginning when we we're high in May 2020 to when the first unit was moved in, uh, you know, it was eight months. So the first occupants moved in before Christmas. Um, That's rather impressive. Um, so is that a new thing that the city is doing or they have been building housing for the homeless before, but the new, the kind of newness of it was building modular? I, you know, there's a, there, there has been housing for the homeless. Uh, there's also been shelter, uh, various shelter facilities, um, uh, but the modular construction component is relatively new. Um, 
It was initially um, used in BC um, a few years ago, and and then more recently here in, in in Ontario. And so, are you able to tell us a little more about where this type of housing fits in? Because I'm assuming they have the city has many solutions to deal with homelessness and things like that. Like, can you give us an overview of what the ecosystem is like for uh, as far as the city is concerned? Yeah, I mean, I, I can. Um, yeah, I can give a bit of an overview. I mean, there's obviously the, the shelter system, which is temporary. Yeah. Um, there is um, something that's more transitional, where it's really a, a temporary housing. F- uh, well, it's 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 permanent housing, but it's in, intended to transition them out, out of the system. And then there's these housing, which is permanent housing, where they're intended to stay there uh, for as long as they need. Um, So and then, in, in the course, case of in the case of these, are they do they become basically tenants of the city and they just stay as long as they need and then move on to other things later on? Yeah, the the way these works is that the city um, would um, collaborate with with a nonprofit. Um, so the nonprofit organization would would actually operate and run the facility. Right. And depending on the particular organization, they might have offer different services or they might have different um, policies. Gotcha. So why did you get involved with uh, housing for the homeless? Well, I guess um, there's two, I mean, two main reasons I, I could say. I mean, one I spoke to, I touched on earlier is that we, you know, we're a practice that are interested in design work that has, that has meaning, that has uh, offer social value and, I think, I mean, the people that tend to work here with us are interested in doing design, but design that can make a difference. And and what we realize that as a practice, even though that's sort of the culture and the interest, it also makes sense as a business model um, when you focus on work that have relevant issues that are that that the community or society is facing at the moment. Mm-hmm. They tend to be the government tend to be in the same place. Funding tends to be coming at the same same time uh, so it, you know it you know we, we tend to stay nimble to the issues that are at play so that that's one in one one reason the second reason is as a design challenge is interesting for us um, how do you work with you know projects that has certain constraints and how, how do you find opportunities out of that you know how do we use modular construction that you know has a certain perception uh, of being perhaps um institutional and and turn it into something that fits into various contexts into various neighborhoods you know how do we do housing in a economy economical way you know the, the idea of doing more of less um how do we work with such tight schedule what does that mean from a design perspective and uh, yeah so for us it's interesting to create architecture that has within such constraints so Um, so what would be some of the lessons you learned from that? Like you've talked about some of the challenges you were facing and constraints. What would be the most important lessons you've drawn from it that you might be able to apply to future work? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of lessons. I mean, the, the, I mean, modular construction and prefabrication is pretty interesting. I mean, there's the whole pros and cons of, you know, quality, quality control, you know, what can be done in the shop. Um, could be extremely high quality because you're doing it in a control environment versus what happens on a site as, you know, so we take a lot of time thinking about what, you know, how to design these so that we, how do we maximize the sort of type of work that could be done in the shop and minimize the type of work that gets, that's done on site. Um, 
you know, there's sort of other technical challenges. We won't get into the details how, you know, these things come completely finished and it gets craned into place. So there's the idea of, you know, tolerance and, you know, how do you, how do you, how do they actually join together? It's interesting from a technical perspective. Um, I guess the other aspect is because these are wood modular system, there's a certain limitation that they, you know, they tend to be three to five story. So it generates relatively compact buildings. So from a density and built, built form perspective, it's, it's, it's also interesting for us, you know, the sites are relatively compact, 100 by 200 feet. Um, so within sort of what would fit five to six single family houses, we would fit 50 units. Um, in terms of how it applies to, you know, other, uh, other projects, I, I mean, I, I think, I think that the speed of these are, are good lessons learned. I mean, we were involved in other affordable housing projects, um, such as the housing initiative, uh, the housing now initiative you might have heard of, where um, the city wants to deliver over five thousand affordable units uh, over the next few years, and these tend to be much larger mixed use um, uh, developments. And as quickly as the city is intended to do them, it still takes a few years, right? So to be able to deliver something that could be within 12 months, I think it's something that is relevant to other housing projects and just the speed of providing housing. So the uh, I have kind of a, a twofold question for you. Maybe you can break it down into separate answers if you want. But the first part of the question is um, modular construction has been very much liked by architects by and large for the last few decades, maybe the last 50, 60 or 70 years, but it's never really taken hold as a, um, a very common way of building. It, it happens and people build in modular construction, but by and large, most construction is still based on the uh, on-site construction model. Why is that... Um, not more common given the fact that you know it's faster more precise uh, better finished uh, there's plenty of advantages to modular construction and few constraints i mean you have size constraints maybe but uh architects are also really good at working with constraints so why isn't that more prevalent as of as a technique or or method of construction and uh how do does the advantages or the lessons you've learned from modular housing for the homeless possibly apply to the broader housing challenges because as we both know, uh, currently housing affordability is an issue for everyone, not just for low-income people. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. I think you know to answer the first part of the question, why, why is it not used more frequently? Why hasn't it taken hold as, as much as, as one could imagine? I mean, I, I think there is a cost premium to modular construction. Um, so I think it really comes down to, you know, is there a business case for it, right? So let's say you're applying to market housing, for example, you know, and there is maybe 50 or $75 a square foot premium on the modular versus conventional. Um, does the speed of accelerating the construction, um, the benefit of that is that greater than the cost premium. So it really comes down to the, 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 the business model. So, mm -hmm. so that's one. I think the other is that modular construction makes sense when you have a lot of repetition, right? So does the program take benefit from, from this, from this construction? Um, 
you know, the, the, the projects that I'm talking about, you know, the first one was a hundred homes over two sites. The second phase of the Toronto project is 300 home over five sites. Mm-hmm. These are all identical units, all 300 square feet of the same thing. So it makes, it makes a lot of practical sense. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get into other building types, uh, you know, even, even regular market housing, you know, there's a lot more variety. So at some point you lose the economy of that repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of lessons uh, apply to 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 other housing project, I think that's your second part of your question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I could see, you know, I I, I could see um, highly sustainable, perhaps micro homes that you know that has that provide compact living that 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 may work for other housing like market housing. Um, you know, these are. What's interesting about these? It's it's um, these are wood frame construction, mm-hmm. uh, so not using steel or concrete, other than a bit of foundation. So they're fi- fairly fairly sustainable projects. Um, they you know, and because of the constraint of the 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 module, which has to be about twelve to fourteen feet wide by sixty five feet long, so it fits in a, a sort of a, a, a truck. Um, you know, it tend to work for the smaller units. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's one application that I could see, and and because of the size of it, um, it might pay for the premium it, it, by building less per unit. You know, it might it might start to make financial sense for the premium of the uh, of, of modular. Yeah, those are very interesting points because you, and and this is a bit of my personal opinion, but you'd think that. Now that we've seen how bad uh, the housing affordability has become of an issue, um, you'd think that all the traditional solutions that we've traditionally relied on um, should be not discarded because they probably have some value, but should be considered somewhat obsolete and looking at maybe faster and easier ways to build. So you'd think people would be trying a bunch of new things such as modular housing. And I'm sure there's other technologies out there that could help with the problem. Um, so, so it's an interesting answer that you've given me. Um, would you see, for example, uh, rental housing be uh, reasonably based on the same model or is that just so completely different that it wouldn't work for that? I, I, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's possible. I think it really, again, I think it comes down to to the to the business case. Um, you know, how much are you able to charge for it? You know, relative to the premium. So that, that's why I think you know the idea. You know, I, I think as as the trend goes towards more sustainable living, living with a smaller footprint. You know, maybe us. You know. The, the the sort of willingness to to live in less space, you know, it might start to swing it so that it, it makes sense from a from a business perspective to use this. Um, you know, the other thing that's interesting is unlike, you know, when you build when when developer build out of concrete, for example, which is the majority of you know of the of the housing development, mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain economy that's going high, right, with the tower footprint. Um, well, they kind of you know, have to to make their pro forma work, right? Right, exactly. The, the the zoning and the development charges are so restrictive that they have to go as high as they can to maximize their revenue or profit. Ex- exactly, exactly. So you don't see a lot of three, four, five story, you know, um, you know, concrete condos around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
for this particular type of construction, it's very modular and it, you know, the limitation is really around five story. You know, you can maybe stretch it to six at the most. Um, mm-hmm. What uh, So a lot of the buildings we're doing are sort of the, the type of infill urban project that is the kind of density that we're missing a lot in, in Canadian, Canadian cities. You know, the one that we're doing now for, uh, and, uh, for Housing City Hamilton is 24 units mm-hmm. on a lot that's only uh, 100 foot wide three-story and you know it would normally fit two or three houses at the most and we are fitting 24 homes in that in three stories Uh, and so they actually fit well into the residential neighborhood while adding the type of density that we need yeah i mean there's a lot of precedent even in toronto that the units are bigger obviously but you have a lot of those three four-story apartment buildings that are not much taller if at all than the surrounding houses but have a slightly bigger footprint and they usually have a flat roof so you can have like uh, large units on two or three floors and have like six homes on what would be a large one, one large home on the same lot. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you wanted to add something? Yeah. And I mean, these, these particular um, sort of models that we're looking at for followed by housing, you know, they don't have parking. So there's no, no underground parking. There's no basement uh, because of the number of units. There isn't like a large garbage sort of loading requirement. Uh, so it's it's actually a relatively light footprint on these tight urban lots. So mm-hmm. you know that you know that's I think something we can learn from. Uh, from and could other you realistically form. in modular build larger units? Maybe combining several modules together. Like could you have a eight hundred to thousand square foot apartments? Yep, yeah, sure. You certainly can. Um, you know, you could op- you could put two modules side by side, and that would create a one or two bedroom units. Um, that is probably in the range of, uh, you know, 750 to 800 square foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but I'd love to hear your opinion on that. And, and just out of curiosity, what do you think are the biggest uh, roadblocks to the current housing affordability issues that we have? And if you had a magic wand, what would be your solution or solutions to that? <laughs> uh, well, I think, I, I think the um, part, you know, part of the roadblock is, I mean, like city of Toronto is very unique, right? Where we have, um, we still have a lot of single family housing in the downtown core. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and, and there's, there is, uh, you know, quite a bit of resistance in certain areas to, you know, to, to densify those areas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you tend to have a kind of this all or nothing approach, you know, where the developer goes in, you know, go for the OMB and goes for the full, the full blown podium, you know, 40 story tower solution. Um, and so, yeah. So if we have the magic wand would be to, you know, to look at innovative way to introduce um, the smaller scale housing unit Um you know, into the residential neighborhood and create a, a wider variety of housing, um, and and to offer and and maybe offer uh, these smaller unit options um, that that are quite sustainable. Uh, um, you know, where you don't have to let's not build more than we have to, um, but fit it into the resident residential neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and. You know, and I, I think what we've learned also through this process, and because some of the municipality we've been working with have, have been quite pushing the sustainability agenda quite a bit, is that 
these type of building can be done with a very low carbon footprint. Um, these are not glass housing, glass condos, glass housing buildings. They're, they're highly um, insulated envelope. You know, we have triple glaze window in them. Um, and because they're shop fabricated, you can take advantage of that quality and have really tight envelope with very low air infiltration. So, you know, one of them we're doing is going to be passive house certified. Um, you know, we are looking at a, a net zero prototype for these uh, for this building type now, next, this is something that's in in, in on the drawing board. Um, so I think we can easily do um, zero emission buildings housing in an affordable way out of the, this uh, this 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 type of construction. Yeah, let's hope the uh, regulatory environment becomes more favorable to that because I, I personally think the a large part of the blame, not all the blame, a large part of the blame is on politicians' lack of balls for like a better term to change the zoning and allow not crazy dance, but dancer uh, uh, typologies as of right, instead of having, what is it? 60 or 70% of the city that's um, entirely uh, zoned for single family, which is insane. I mean, I moved to Toronto 17 years ago and even then we didn't have those problems, but it was insane to me that the city, the size of Toronto, as you mentioned earlier, would have, entire neighborhoods of single family homes in the downtown core like that just never made sense to me because i grew up in cities where you know the the downtown core was a much denser area you'd have like six to ten story buildings everywhere and walkable neighborhoods and all the amenities within 15 minutes um which is pretty much the case in most of downtown ish Toronto neighborhoods, but as soon as you get a little further out, it's a lot less livable if you don't have a car. So those are very interesting um, kind of legacies we're left to deal with uh, from a much different era. Um, I think those were all the questions I had for you because it's the only other questions I didn't ask you pretty much answered um, in an indirect way, are there any last words you want to share with the, the podcast audience or any um, ideas you want to put out there? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I, and I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this because we, you know, this is something we've been, this is something, you know, these rapid delivery housing projects is something that we've only ex been exposed to in the last 24 months. And we've, we've gone through nine, we're on the ninth project now. So it's been, it's been um, it's been very exciting. So, thinking about all that, I mean, one one thing that I came across a quote recently. Um, I don't know if you heard it by by Ray and Charles Eames, and and they wanted to do the best for the most for the least. So the mm -hmm. best design for the most people for the least cost, and I, I think that's quite inspiring when we are thinking about the housing crisis and affordable housing. You know, how can we apply this sort of this sort of vision to uh, creating highly sustainable, compact, affordable living. Yeah, well, hopefully your work uh, kind of paves the way for other people to um, follow suit and maybe use modular housing and, and prefabricated in a, in a in a factory and and to to solve some of those challenges. Um, but that regarding that quote from the from the Eames, I'm, I didn't know that quote, but I'm not surprised knowing their work. It's it's very much in keeping with their uh, lifelong work ethic. So um, I'm glad you shared that. I want to thank you very much for your time. I think it was a, a very inter interesting conversation and hopefully the first of many. Thanks, Arno.
Thanks again. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.